It was soon after I became pastor, uh, over 25 years ago, I had a gentleman that was coming to our church. We were meeting at Cox North Hospital, used the Fountain Plaza room every Sunday morning, had to uh, set up for church, you know, every morning of the chairs and everything. Had a, a gentleman that was coming to our church that had had an experience with a very large church in another city, was convinced that one of the most important things for a successful church ministry was proper lighting. Didn't, didn't talk about, you know, preaching the Word of God. It was having proper lighting. Tried to convince me of this. In fact, he built these boxes that we could use every Sunday morning that had lights in them, and he convinced himself that if we had the right lighting, we create the right mood and be far more effective as a church. I would suggest that our ability to differentiate between essential and non-essential issues is a, is a critical ingredient in having some success in life. Our ability to live a fruitful Christian life can be hampered by a narrow perspective. Would you agree with me on that? Now, I think it's because we probably all, if you've been a Christian for five minutes, we've experienced a narrow perspective because we've all been, been guilty of it. We, we harp on one thing, you know, over another. For instance, let's say I were to ask you, what does it take to be a great employee at the job that you've got? What does it take to be a great employee? You know, some people might respond, well, it's one who does not steal or one who shows up on time. Now, valuable ingredients but not necessarily essential ingredients to a great employee. In other words, you could show up on time, you could not steal a dime from your workplace and still stink as an employee, right? Those aren't necessarily essential. If I were to ask you, what makes a healthy marriage? You might respond, well, I think a healthy marriage means that you go out once a week and you date one another. Or you don't argue in front of your kids. Those are essential elements to a healthy marriage. Again, reputable traits, but I doubt that you could say those were essential. I mean, you could go out every day with your spouse, never argue in front of the kids, and have deep communication and intimacy issues, which are far more important than those other items, right? Essential characteristics are non-negotiable, foundational, necessary in order for a marriage to be healthy. I mean, it's not hard to conceive of a, of a couple that dated maybe once a month and maybe at times even argued in front of their kids, but they had great communication, great intimacy, emotional, physical, spiritual, and a healthy marriage. But a couple that does not communicate and has intimacy issues, again, you could go out all you wanted and still your relationship would not be a good one. So if we, if we narrow our perspective and harp on non-essential issues, we do that at the detriment of a job, a marriage, or even a church. What if I were to ask you, what makes a healthy Christian? What might you say? Would you rattle off a list of non-essential issues or things that are truly essential to the Christian life? If 
Christianity has had problems in any area. It's in this area. Christian, you know, organizations, churches, individuals are, are fraught with people who accentuated one aspect of the Christian life, you know, like lights, uh, at the detriment of essential characteristics. You know, it's been a problem ever since Christianity has been on the earth. The Pharisees struggled with this during the time of Christ. And they accentuated outside behavior at the neglect of more important heart issues. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You guys are going hog wild, he's saying, on, on tithing, you know, little herbs, and you neglect weightier matters. I mean, we can get so far adrift, Jesus said in Mark 7, 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And in the Old Testament, it was the same thing. Micah 6, 7, and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good. In other words, here are the things you need to concentrate on. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Justice. Stand up for people. Be kind to people. Treat others well. Walk humbly with God. Actually, That is kind of a precursor to what Jesus said the two most important commandments are, which were what? To love God and to love others. You can't love God without having a humble walk with God. You can't love others without being kind. Micah reflects that same idea. When I think of 1 Thessalonians 2, particularly verse 8 that we're going to concentrate on today, it deals with servanthood. And when I think of essential characteristics of the Christian life, serving others, uh, you got to put that on the list, servanthood. In fact, what did Jesus do one of the last acts with his disciples? He brought a towel and a basin, and he washed their feet, and he was letting them know, do this. With others, serve, servanthood, it's essential. It is absolutely essential. What better path on this Father's Day for fathers to follow than to model servanthood in the home? Let's stand as we look at our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You that are new here today, you're in trouble because that was just the introduction. We haven't even started the sermon yet. All right, we got about another 90 minutes to go, all right? Just, just kidding. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we have never uh, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And our first four messages in this series have dealt with these first seven verses. Now today, verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Father, I pray that we as a church might model servanthood. Thank you for the perfect example in Jesus. May we reflect his life and how we operate with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible often contrasts essential characteristics with things that maybe aren't quite as important. The Apostle Paul does this in a dramatic fashion in 1 Corinthians 13. He makes the point that, you know what, it's not that faith or tongues or prophecy are of no value, but compared to love? Hmm, Listen to what he says. Uh, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. You can do all of these things. You can have all these spiritual exploits that impress people. Look at this healing. Look at this prophetic utterance. Look at these tongues. Look at all this stuff that's going on. God must really be at work. And if you have not love, it is spiritually flat. Zip, nana, nothing. It might be even hyperbole that he's using, an exaggeration in showing the essential need of love. Now, in case we need clarification, he says that love is not just a feeling, it's not sentimentality, it's an action that springs from the heart, and he uses verbs, and verbs describe what? Action, when he describes it here, starting with verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all that. This is applied to people. It bears all things, bears people. It believes all things. Even when you hear a bad report on somebody, you're going to believe the best. It hopes all things. Even when you find out it's true, the bad report, you're going to still hope the best For that person, it endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these, it's love. It's love. The ability, in fact, he he, he connotes that it's a childish thing to concentrate on all these other things and forget love. It's a childish thing to concentrate on all these non-essential things, these pet peeves, this agenda, and forget the foundational, necessary items of the Christian life. We do it all the time, don't we? We concentrate on things that you don't even find it in Scripture, but we make it an issue like lights. Hey, you want to you do something for Father's Day today? Dads, how about leading the charge and loving well? Serving. Our last point in the Servanthood series is this. Servants make loving relationships an essential characteristic. Listen to these words. Being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you'd become very dear to us. An essential characteristic of a healthy ministry, a healthy Christian life, and we talked about this last week as well, is loving well, ministering to others out of vulnerability, sharing not only the gospel but our own lives. I love the balance that the word of God gives and that Paul gives here. You not only have the truth, which we need to share, we need to contend for the truth, contend for the facts of the gospel, but also we do this affectionately. We, we give our lives to this. So there's, there are these parallel tracks of, of truth and love, right? And that's what Paul's conveying. Truth matters, but not at the exclusion of love. And all of us, all of us who have ministered, we have, we have experienced a degree of failure in this one way or the other when we maybe go to one side and forget the other in terms of truth or love. And there are, there are conflicts and issues that arise in a, in a family and job and in ministry. And it tests our resolve to be able to focus on those things that are essential. I mean, the marriage has problems. And we might think that holding out and getting our way that that's more important than love. An issue arises in the church, and we're tempted to think that that issue is more important than loving well. And the great thing is, is that in all these issues, God has provided a mechanism for relationships to prosper even in the midst of difficulties. You know what that is? It's called forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the mechanism God gives when things are broken. You talk through the issues. You deal with it. You don't run from it. You show respect to your spouse, to your friends, to the the people in the fellowship. 
Now, granted, sometimes the other party is not interested. And the Bible even addresses that. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then in Romans it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, Romans 12, 18. In other words, always apply, apply grace, always seek peace, and if the other party is not interested, you still value the person. You do not close the door with a heart of bitterness. You leave the door open for reconciliation. The other person may not be interested. In fact, you may need boundaries. The other person may be hostile or violent. You see some cases like that, even in a marriage. But we never close the door on what is best for that other person. And the religious world, I think, has a real problem in discerning the difference between love and valuing the person and then our hobby horses. It's really what Jesus meant when he said, you know, you've got a log in your, in your eye and you're harping on the splinter in somebody else's. I'll just use this as an example. You could have somebody that harps on somebody smoking, let's say. I mean, I'm just making this up. You could uh, say, hey, you know, you shouldn't smoke, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe you got a real stinky marriage and you, you know, disrespect your spouse and yet you're getting on somebody for smoking? I mean, really? Why don't you clean up your own house? See what I'm saying? I mean, we as humans are tempted to disproportionately look at others while we miss essential characteristics in our own life. And what this does is cloud our ability to evaluate not only our own lives, but discernment with others. I mean, what if we as a church did not understand what was essential? What if we did not have our priorities set to a biblical perspective, and instead we looked at what the latest church was doing or what this church that, you know, has monstrous growth, what they're doing, and we'll just, you know, follow that. Or maybe we'll just follow a leader's whim and fancies with whatever he or she likes or doesn't like. We basically can easily use our experience to evaluate things instead of a biblical model. And then we set up these arbitrary evaluations based on our experiences and likes and dislikes. And that's where the danger is, all right? Uh, Let me put it this way. Is there such a thing as a healthy ministry without serving, without loving, without biblical worship and truth, without making disciples? No, there isn't. Take any one of those items out and you do not have a healthy ministry, and yet, like missing the mark on evaluating a marriage, we get tripped up on things that are not essential and they become a hobby horse. And Paul makes it clear what is the bullseye in 1 Thessalonians in describing how servanthood is modeled. And listen, we cannot, and as long as I'm pastor, I don't want to you know, negotiate truth, worship, <laughs> You know, servanthood, these things. It should be in our DNA, making disciples. 
If you're not serving, modeling servanthood in some form or fashion, by the way, that doesn't have to be within the church walls. If you're not modeling servanthood, you are part of the problem. Serving is essential, just like worship and loving and discipleship. When we don't understand the essential elements, you know what happens? We begin to fill the space with our own pet peeves. When we don't understand what our target is, we lose perspective. We begin to make poor decisions. I mean, if in my marriage, let's say, I think I'm a good husband because I take my wife out once a week, but I degrade her in front of others and I don't serve her, okay? I think of myself as a good husband because I take her out. But if I do those other things, I'm a poser. I am not a good husband. I cannot be a good husband and degrade my wife. And I I could take her out every night. And if I do those things, I stink as a husband. And I need to face that and change if that was what was going on. In the same way, we as a church could try to accommodate, you know, my or someone else's pet project. I mean, we could, we could have altar calls, you know, the way that we did it in my other church. Uh, we could have healings. We could have everyone reciting scripture. We could, uh, you know, we could speak in tongues. We should have a pipe organ with hymns. No, you know what we need to have? VBS. No, I'll tell you what we really need. We need a children's choir. No, I'll tell you what we need. We need a pastor who will will be more excited about things. Oh, we have a pastor. We should have a pastor who gets less excited about things. More emotional, less emotional. No, what we need is a church building with state-of-the-art computers for the kids. We need 24-7 entertainment for the whole family. Then we could really have a rocking ministry. We could do all of this, listen, we could do all of this and not love well, not serve, not worship from the heart, not contend for the truth, not make disciples, and we will be a sinking ship. Because all of those external things does not change the essentials. And that is what our focus should be. Do not be moved by those who say, no, you know what I think? I think we need this over here. No, I think we need this over here. No, I think we need... And we get all, you know, man, if we only have this or that. And you know what it does? It creates discontent. We need to keep our eyes on the bullseye, on the target. You know, the Bible does not seem to be too impressed with all the experts today or church growth methods, or spiritual manipulation to shine the light on a leader for glory. Does not seem to be too impressed with facilities and all the rigmarole that goes with the religious world and church life. And the Bible especially casts a negative light 
on having an agenda while you devalue relationships. Here's a thought worth considering. What we like does not necessarily correlate to what is healthy. What we like does not necessarily correlate to what is healthy in a marriage or in a church. I mean, listen, we would all like to work at jobs where every one of our ideas get implemented and we get a raise once a week. That would be awesome, right? We would like that. But you obviously cannot run a business that way. You might think a good marriage is constantly getting your way, but no marriage can be healthy operating like that. We'd all like to have a Christian life that conforms to our desires, one that is constantly scintillating and exciting, a Christian life where circumstances always work in our favor, a Christian life where you don't have to sacrifice, where you can do things as you please, in your own timing, at your own pace, in your own measure. You do what's desirable to you. And like in employment or in marriage, we realize that there has to be sacrifice, even serving, in order to have a healthy work environment, healthy marriage, healthy church. Actually, saying no to ourselves at times is the healthiest thing to do sometimes, right? Self-control is needed. Am I willing to set myself aside, my agenda aside, to have a healthy job, to have a healthy marriage, to have a healthy faith community? Am I willing to focus on the things that are essential and live there instead of worrying about and demanding my own pet peeve? I mean, in any social structure, there has to be that agreement, that willingness to sacrifice for the good of the team, right? I mean, in any team sport, you cannot constantly be the star. The best basketball player on the earth is LeBron James. And he does not shoot every time he gets the ball. He sometimes passes. Why? Because that's the best for the team. He sometimes will, will make a cut, will, will pick another guy from another offensive player. Why? Because that's the best for the team. You will sacrifice yourself, your own glory, for the best of the team. A great question to ask yourself is, how may I sacrifice, how may I serve to make my family, my job environment, my church healthier? Do I have expectations, desires, or goals that are getting in the way of a healthy marriage and family? Am I presently holding to ideas or expectations that keep me from loving and serving wholeheartedly. Think of that. Expectations, ideas that keep me from loving and serving wholeheartedly. Listen, my friends, these are non-negotiable 
items in our Christian life. If you have some pet peeve that keeps you from serving well, some bitterness from the past, some expectation that wasn't met, and because of that, you are withholding your service to Christ that is nothing more than spiritual pouting. You asking somebody else to change before you're all in. That's on you. That's not on the other people. We have to set our target on the essential items needed for the Christian life and for the church and and give ourselves wholeheartedly to those things and all else is negotiable. Lights, sound system, building, you know, those are just tools so that we can do the things that are essential to the church. Paul says this, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we've already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Do you think that he had an idea about what he was there to do. Do you think he had an idea about what was essential? It certainly wasn't to be liked. There was suffering, and yet he kept on. He endured. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. They understood that the heart was important, that motive was important here. But just as we've been approved by God, that's what he was going for, approval by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men. It wasn't a popularity contest but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you became very dear to us. I mean, verse 8 just drips with with relationship, vulnerability, humility, love, kindness. That's what drove him, to communicate the gospel in the context of love and don't get hung up on the other stuff. You stay focused. Let's pray.